All right. Thank you, Ryan and Jessica. Uh, this morning, we're looking at Mark chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We're continuing to work through the gospel of Mark as we have been. Uh, I think my <clears throat> total count for this week is uh, that we have this is the 43rd sermon that we have been through in the Gospel of Mark. And so uh, we're just continuing this march verse by verse, uh, scripture by scripture, passage by passage, paragraph by paragraph through Mark. And we're getting ever closer to the crucifixion. We are working our way up. Now we're the night before the crucifixion. Uh, just last week in our message, uh, we saw the disciples going to prepare the Passover feast and to join uh, up in the upper room together with the apostles. And they have made preparations and now Mark is going to give us insight into the disciples' path. And uh, yeah, this is a very familiar passage for, for many of us. We, we understand that there are two distinct groups here. Judas betrays and all the disciples fall away. There is a falling away of Jesus's, 11 of Jesus's apostles, and there is the outright betrayal by one of Jesus's apostles. We're gonna look at verses 17 through 21, and then we're gonna skip over verses 22 to 25 today. We'll come back to that next week and talk about the Lord's Supper but today we're going to talk about verses 17 through 21 and verses 26 through 31 about betrayal and about falling away. So pray with me as we look at this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise behind it that blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and those who read as well. We thank you that there is just a general blessing uh, of being in your word together in a community of committed Christ followers who know each other and who love each other and are experiencing your presence and your word and worship together. We thank you for the blessing of biblical community. We ask that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We thank you that your word will endure forever, that hundreds, thousands of years ago, people were working through and preaching through this text and should you tarry and delay in coming in the future people will read this text and so i thank you that your word will endure not necessarily my words not necessarily our experiences or our thoughts about your word but your word will endure and there is power in your word so we pray that you would take your word and that you would use it to strengthen us and to challenge us and to change us Moses prayed in Exodus 34, Lord, show us your glory. Abraham prayed in Genesis, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass me by. And this morning we echo those two prayers. Lord, do not pass us by as we gather in the name of Jesus to read and reflect on your word. Do not pass us by. And as we open your word, please show us your glory and your majesty. Teach us by your word and make us more and more like Jesus Christ, that we may shine like stars against a wicked and corrupt generation. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 17. Let's read it together. 
And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Skip down to verse 26. Judas has already left the room. <clears throat> verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. It's interesting, the desire of each of us. I'm sure there's not a sincere Christ follower in the parking lot today or, or tuning in in their car here or listening uh, over the internet on our online worship service. I'm sure there's not a sincere believer among us who want to betray Jesus. Certainly none of us want to fall away from Jesus. We don't want to fall away. We don't want to betray. And yet the reality is Jesus' closest followers, the ones who were with him the most, the ones who were uh, closest to him, all of them fell away. One of them betrayed him. Those are difficult odds for us to reconcile. Because here you are, sincere in faith, sincere in your desire, sincere in your commitment to Christ today. And you may be teetering on the verge of either betrayal or falling away from faith in Jesus Christ altogether. Maybe you're strong in your faith today, and like Peter, you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to fall away. There's no way I will betray Jesus. But this is a reality for each of us that we have to reconcile. Lately, our family has been uh, obsessed with a TV show called Alone. Alone uh, is a show, we're in season seven, where participants are helicoptered into a remote part of the Great Slave Lake in the Arctic. And they're just dropped by themselves with just a few uh, primitive tools in the fall, and they have to survive an Arctic winter. And the goal is to survive 100 days by themselves and get a million dollars. One out of 10 chance that, uh, that they will get a million dollars. All they have to do is survive a small thing like the Arctic winter with an ax and like a wooden bow and arrow and some sticks and some stones versus packs of wolves, black bear, foxes, all kinds of wild animals, um, psychological issues. And it's a fascinating show. We're really fascinated by it. Um, and one by one, for a variety of reasons, they each began to tap out. Each one of them calls on their sat phone and says, I'm done. One guy, just a few days, 
another person at 40 days, another person further in. But one by one, along this long path, they each began to fall away. Some may have their own reasons. Some struggled psychologically. That was interesting. Some struggled socially. Just the sheer loneliness of being out there. Some struggled physically. Some had health issues, hunger issues, temperature issues affected all of them. But one by one, they each began to tap out. It's not so much unlike the Christian faith. In John 6, 66, we read that after Jesus teaches a particularly heavier commitment to follow him, it says that after that, many of those Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Paul, years later, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Paul, meeting with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and even those from among your own selves will arise, speaking twisted things and drawing disciples away from them. When we first merged together, Ridgeline and Rock Hill, we walked through the book of Hebrews over a period of months, and one of the enduring purposes of that book was a call to lasting, persisting faith in Jesus Christ. See, in the Christian life, it doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish, and it's compared over and over again to a marathon, to a race, to a long, enduring, straight walk a long obedience in the same direction. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says it's like a race that one receives a prize and that we should run in such a way that we would obtain the prize. In Philippians 3, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Spiritual walk is a marathon. It's a, a walk, a long walk in the same direction. And my whole goal for you and I today is that we might endure in living an active faith in Jesus Christ to the end by the grace of God. No matter where you are today, my hope and prayer for you is that you would not betray, that you would not fall away, but that you would endure in living an active faith in Jesus Christ to the end by the grace of God. That if you have fallen away, Maybe you tuned in this morning uh, to the internet, to the live feed, or maybe you're here and you haven't been here for a long time, or maybe your faith is on the edge and you're considering walking away. My hope and prayer that if you have fallen away, that you would find restoration and renewal through times like that when we temporarily fall away so that you may resume the race. There is always hope. There is always hope for those who have fallen away. So let's get back into the text and make some observations before we have some practical application here. Verse 17 of Mark chapter 14, when it was evening, we understand the timeline. We've been going through this. It's Thursday evening. Jesus is within just a few hours of the trials and just within 12 to 15 hours of the crucifixion itself. He's gathered in the upper room with the 12. You understand that Jesus had um, organized 
a lot of different groups in his organization. There are the 72 disciples, the, those who are disciples that are following Jesus. That's a wider group of people, that, 72 that he sends out. Uh, there is a larger group of disciples. Hundreds meet within uh, 40 days of Jesus' resurrection. Over 500 people see his ascension. There are supporters. There are disciples. Uh, Luke 8, 1 through 3 says that there are a number of women who follow Jesus and are supporters in his organization that support him of their own financial means that are following him along the road. Among these groups, Jesus has a large organization, but this particular night, he is only with the apostles, the 12. Out of all the disciples, just the 12 are together. Verse 18 tells us that as they're reclining at the table, they're finishing the meal, the Passover meal. Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And to understand fully what's happening here, you have to be familiar with John chapters 13 through 17. This particular section, though Mark only gives us a few paragraphs to it, John dedicates an entire third of the gospel to the upper room discourse. Five full chapters, four or more hours of Jesus pouring into his disciples, washing their feet, teaching them, eating with them, praying with them. They're singing together. He's going to teach them about the end times and about um, the Holy Spirit and his role. He's going to pray over them in this time. He's going to tell them that one of them is going to betray them. During all this time, Jesus is teaching, praying, um, laughing, working with them, encouraging them, strengthening them. It's a long chapter. If you want to understand it, it would take you uh, 20 to 30 minutes. If you just read through John 13 through 17 straight through, it would take you a long time just to work through that material. Mark summarizes and skips a lot of that. But this upper room discourse is very important to the Apostle John. He wants us to understand all that's taking place here. We don't have time to get into all that. Mark limits our attention. Jesus simply says, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. As I looked through this passage this week, I had to ask the question, why did Jesus tell the apostles this? Why do they all need to know this? Jesus already knew that one of them would betray him. He even knew which one would do it. So why tell all of them? Why consume the 11 with fear and doubt and worry? He knew. Psalm 41.9 says that even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate bread with me, has raised his heel against me. Jesus understood that Judas would betray him. But he tells them all for some reason, and the effect is immediate. They all begin to be sorrowful, asking the question, is it me? The result of Jesus' revelation is that they each feel sorrowful, and they each ask if they were the one to betray. Now just think about that for just a moment. That's remarkable. All of them understand that they are capable of betraying Jesus. Don't you find that interesting? All of them are capable of betraying Jesus, and they all know that. The 12 most committed, closest, most intimate friends of Jesus, even John, even Peter, even James, who saw the transfigured Jesus on the mountain, all of them understand 
that they are completely capable of fully betraying Jesus. They are not deceived in any way. They're all asking, is it I, is it I, is it I? That's remarkable. None of them are fooled into thinking that they were strong enough in and of themselves. We'll talk more about that in a minute. John 13, 27 tells us that after Jesus had taken the bread, John leans in and says, uh, who's the one that's going to betray you? And Jesus said, I'm going to dip this piece of bread in, and, and the one that I give it to, he's the betrayer. And after he takes the morsel, uh, he gives it to Judas, and John 13, 27 says that Satan entered into Judas. John lets us know that there is a 14th member of the upper room group, and it is none other than the Prince of Darkness. Satan himself is in the room, and he is going to embody, fully possess Judas himself. I'm just going to do that, because the, I don't know if the flapping breeze is bothering you, but I hear that right there. Satan himself enters into Judas, and Jesus says, what you are going to do, do quickly, showing you that Jesus is not caught off guard. He's not surprised that Satan is there. He's not surprised that Judas is going to betray him. Jesus is in full control, mentally, physically, over the entire, spiritually, over every part of the process that's about to take place. What you're going to do, go do it quickly. What does this mean for betrayal? Let me just pause here because Judas betrays, the others fall away, and there's a distinction here. There's a difference. Betrayal is described here and elsewhere in the New Testament, listen close, is the willful, intentional departure from personal faith in Jesus Christ. It's the willful, intentional departure from personal faith in Jesus Christ. It's a moment in your conscience when you say, I don't believe this any longer. Many of you who have walked with Jesus for any period of time, who have been a part of church, you have been uh, on the front row seats to this. You have seen people who used to teach Sunday school, who used to be a deacon, who used to be a pastor even, who used to be an elder. You have seen people who are no longer walking with Jesus that are now fully and finally saying, I no longer believe this at all. They have departed from the faith. Now, as long as there's breath in their lungs, uh, as long as they have the opportunity to repent, they can be restored, but betrayal is either the revelation that they never had faith, or it's the willful, deliberate, intentional decision to depart from personal saving faith in Jesus Christ. You see it in headlines, you see pastors who are on large profiles and, and large platforms that have big followings that are now in different positions and they deny the Bible, they deny doctrine, they deny Jesus and they hold to uh, sort of uh, universalism that all people will be saved or that hell's not real or that love wins or something along those lines. There is a willful departure from the faith. Now, I want you to understand there's hope we're going to talk about falling away. We're going to talk about restoration in a little while. 
But betrayal, as it's described here, Judas reveals that he did not have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus even said, you are all clean because of the word. And in John it says, but not all of you are clean. For, and, and John says, for the, the a side note, for he knew the one who didn't believe, right? Judas never believed in Jesus Christ. Jesus was worthless to Judas. As a matter of fact, Jesus was a way to make money to Judas. Judas had false motives for following Jesus. He wanted power, he wanted fame, he wanted finances. Uh, John says he used to take, um, hold charge of the money bag, and he would regularly dip his hands into the money bag. You remember just the Saturday before in Bethany when Mary comes and pours $300 or 300 days salary uh, worth of perfume over Jesus' head. Um, one of the disciples, John tells us, is Judas. Judas complains, this could have been sold for a year's wages, and we could have given that to the poor. And John says immediately, he didn't care about the poor. He just wanted that year's salary in, in his own hand, in his own pocket. Jesus was a way to make money for Judas. That's, that sounds so hard for us to believe. I've, I've been a part of training classes. I've been approached in my pastoral ministry and career by over 30 people with a financial opportunity for me that if I will uh, sort of get in their downline or be a part of their business, that um, together we can make a lot of money and, and they will ask me if they can advertise within the church or if they can sell products within the church or if they can um, you know do business within the church. And it's a very difficult um place to be in when people want to come into the church to make money on the church and they see um, spirituality as a way to make money. And it's a temptation I understand. You see someone who has influence over a few hundred people and greed takes over and they think that godliness is a way to make money. Judas was in that role. Immediately after he sells out Jesus, with the money, he goes out and buys a field. Now, why do you buy a field? You buy property because you want to make money with property, because you want to make a house with property. You want to, um, you want to plant crops on a field. Maybe Judas dreamt of a new life or a new start or a new business or a new financial way to make money through this money. Jesus was worthless to Judas. He did not have saving faith in Jesus, and that was revealed. His betrayal reflected the absence of faith. Now, last week was all about faith. If you missed last week, you missed a call for Christ followers to live by faith, not by sight. You missed the way in which believers are to walk by faith, to continue to abide in Christ by faith, to not lean on your own understanding, as Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, but to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to in all your ways acknowledge him so that he will make straight your paths. The walk of faith is not new to believers, but to unbelievers, they have no understanding of faith whatsoever. Christianity is practical. It's a means to an end, often a means to a personal selfish end. And this oftentimes is reflected in times of trial, in times of difficulty, in times of uncertainty. They walk away from the faith and they often betray publicly. 
But ultimately, betrayal is a, a willingness to say personally, I don't believe this anymore. And it's usually accompanied by behaviors or preceded by behaviors that you would expect, frankly, from someone who no longer believes. They don't believe. And so Judas immediately goes out and hands Jesus over to those who crucify him. Those who no longer believe often exhibit or pre-exhibit behaviors before they stop believing. People stop attending church. They stop attending church permanently. They make an end to spiritual relationships. They stop going to small group. A devotional life halts. There is usually no more Bible study, no more personal devotional, no more prayer, no more fellowship. Oftentimes this happens long before they ever acknowledge a lack of faith. I can always tell someone is in trouble by simple things like they stop attending, or they stop responding to emails, phone calls, text messages. They stop attending church, they stop attending small group, they stop attending Bible study, they make an end to relationships within the church, and it's usually not too much longer before a person says, I just don't know if I've ever believed that. Names, faces flash in my mind through the years of people who have walked away from the faith, and you can see this pattern painfully playing out in their life. There's often a rush of new behaviors, new beliefs, new explanations, new rationalizations, all in an attempt to process and explain and convince themselves and others that it's okay, I'm okay, and it's okay for me to live this way. They could immediately jump into or have been shown to have always lived in an immoral, rebellious way. Or they could exhibit extremely moral, good behavior, maybe a life of activism or good deeds. Sin doesn't care whether you're rebellious, like the younger brother and the prodigal son, or extremely righteous, self-righteous, like the older brother. Both ultimately found themselves outside of the presence of the Father, whether in rebellious living or in moral living. Some of the most moral people I know don't believe in Jesus Christ. Your outward works of righteousness are not what save you. So that's the first paragraph. It describes the betrayal of Judas, and we covered there a little bit about what it means to betray, but, but there's a clear distinction in what Judas does after he leaves the room in the conversation that Jesus picks up with the rest of the disciples. Satan enters Judas, and he leaves to meet the Sanhedrin soldiers, and then... Jesus tells the rest that they will fall away. Now, in my margin, in my notes in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, over years of study, I've just seen that it's better from Jesus' perspective to fall away than to betray. We'd rather not fall away, right? <laughs> if we have a choice, it's better to fall away than to betray. So let's, let's understand what it means to fall away. Look at verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They've left the upper room. They've traveled through the city of Jerusalem. They go across the Kidron Valley. They start to ascend the 2,600 feet up to the top of the Mount of Olives or somewhere in that elevation. 
And then Jesus looks at them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, in contrast to Judas, the disciples, this hits them hard. They'd already heard somebody's going to betray me. They've already said, is it I? Am I the one who's going to fall away? Now, am I the one who's going to betray? Now Jesus says, now you're going to fall away. Jesus predicts they're falling away. Imagine that after five hours of Jesus washing your feet, praying over you, singing with you, eating with you, teaching you, telling you about the coming Holy Spirit, telling you about the end times, telling you about all of these things, five hours of Jesus and the disciples in this intimate worship experience. Then Jesus walks out of the room and says, now you're all going to fall away. Have you ever gone to a summer camp or like a Christian retreat or had maybe gone to some sort of a revival or an awakening where you've, you've just had an extended period of time with the saints, with the believers around the Word of God, a lot of prayer, a lot of Bible study, and, and you come out of that and you feel like you're on this sort of spiritual high and the spiritual mountaintop and, and you can't imagine... You can't imagine not dwelling with God or not walking with Jesus in this sort of way. And then, and then to, to imagine coming out of the upper room and Jesus looking at you and saying, by the way, you're all going to fall away. What a shock. What a shock for the disciples. Jesus drops this painful reality check on them and they're heartbroken. They fall away, and they all fall away in different ways, right? In Mark 14, 50, later on, it says they all left him and fled after Jesus was seized. Mark even describes himself in verses 51 and 52. He says, a youth had on an outer garment, and when the soldiers grabbed him, he left the garment and fled away naked. Every one of Jesus' closest friends there fell away, and we're going to read that in just a few uh, weeks in that chapter. But falling away looked different from each of them, didn't it? Peter grabs a sword. He hacks off the ear of the soldier, right? The other disciples are fleeing. One Mark is running away naked. They're all leaving in different ways. Um, Peter is following from a distance. He goes into the courtyard of the high priest. He's warming himself by the fire when the servant girl says, you're one of them, the disciples. He says, it's not me. He falls away in a different way a few hours later. The apostle John is the only disciple that we know of at the crucifixion. On the cross, Jesus looks at John, the disciple that he loved, and he said, you know, this is your mother, and I want you to take care of her. All of them fall away, but falling away looks different from, for each of them. Jesus gives them some context as to why they would fall away. Zephaniah, I'm sorry, Zechariah 13:7 is the prophecy that Jesus quotes, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus helps them understand, he gives them context for why they're going to fall away. They're going to strike me hard. And when they strike the shepherd, you're going to fall away. That's that's a reality that's not too hard for us to imagine if you have a strong leader in your life and you're following a strong leader, whether it's in a company or whether it's in uh, a friendship or whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in a church or something, if you follow a strong leader and they fall away, all of us know that the ground feels shaky. 
for a period of weeks or months or years. The, to the degree that we followed this strong leader and to the degree of their fall is to the degree that we can experience shaky ground, instability. Jesus gives them some context. But I love verse 28. In verse 28, Jesus says, But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Two important things there. He gives them hope of the resurrection. Nothing is surprising Jesus. He's just telling them the facts. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. You're all going to fall away. But there's hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's giving them hope. It's just going to be a few days, and I'm going to rise back to life. And after I rise to life, I'm going to be in Galilee ahead of you. Now, I love that. He gives them hope, and then he just says where I'm going to be. I love that Jesus doesn't beg them or manipulate them or guilt trip them. You're going to fall away. How could you? Don't you remember just an hour ago when I was washing your feet and I was lovingly serving you and I was praying over you and then how dare you fall away from me? He doesn't do that. He doesn't manipulate them. He doesn't guilt trip them. He doesn't dig in them and make them feel some sort of emotional guilt trip for their betrayal or their falling away. He just says, you're going to fall away, and after I am raised up, I'm going to be here. He just tells them where he's going to be. I'm speculating, but it almost seems like he's saying, I'm going to be over there, and after you fall away, if you want to resume following me, that's where I'll be. He doesn't go chase them down. He doesn't go make them feel bad. He says, that's where I'll be. If you want to follow me, I'll be in Galilee. And we know that the disciples, after they fall away, Peter goes back to fishing. He's got to walk. He's fishing on the lake, going back to his previous way of life in this pattern after the resurrection of Jesus. He is continuing to fall away until Jesus restores him. But he has to see the resurrected Jesus. He has to make a choice to go and see Jesus on the beach and to be with Jesus in that moment when Jesus restores him. That's later. Now, Jesus just says, after I'm raised up, I'm going to be here. Peter says to him in verse 29, even though they fall away, I'm not going to. This is pride rearing its ugly head. Jesus says to him, truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter essentially, verse 31, calls him a liar. You don't know what you're talking about. He says emphatically, if I have to die with you, I'm not going to deny you. And then they all say the same thing. Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The uh, the apostles really want to be brave. They really want to stay strong. Have you ever convinced yourself that you won't do the very thing that you end up doing? I think I've told this story before, but I used to work at this church in Oklahoma City. And I lived on the property, and I used to have to go uh, inspect the building if an alarm went off in the middle of the night. And I would always kind of swell up when I punched the code in and walked through this dark building. And I would imagine myself, if a burglar was in the building, that I wouldn't be afraid, and that I wouldn't scream, or but I would just swell up, and I would punch the guy or whatever. I don't know what I thought, but I, I used to project what I would do as I would as a 26 year old I walk through this building I'm going to be loud and proud and no one's going to sneak up on me and sure enough after a dozen times over a few years working at this church the alarm goes off two or three in the morning I have to go in 
I have to disable the alarm. I have to either wait for the police to go in or I have to go in immediately. And I decide in bravado, I'm just going to go in. And I walk through the halls. And as I'm walking through the corridors, uh, around one particular corridor, I bump into a, a, a little cleaning lady. Her cart, she's pushing it around the corner, and I'm pushing it around the corner. And the next thing I know, I hear screaming, and I'm thinking in my mind, who's screaming like that? And I realize it's me. I'm the one screaming. She's not screaming. I'm on the ground even, kind of in a duck-down position. I bumped right into her and her cart, and I, I found myself on the floor like a kid just screaming, crying. <laughs> not crying, but just, I was not at all like I thought I was going to be. Have you ever found yourself or convinced yourself that you won't do the very thing that you end up doing? Peter, the most prideful of them all, he says, even if they fall away, I'm not going to fall away. Jesus even says, you're, you're going to fall away. And he says, ah, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. I won't fall away. What can we do in conclusion about this passage? How, how can we apply this to our life? Because you might be thinking to yourself, I don't want to betray Jesus. I don't want to betray Jesus, and I don't want to fall away from Jesus. None of us want that. If you're a sincere Christ follower, if you have faith in Jesus, you don't want to betray him. That is, you don't want to stop believing. Your faith may be on life support right now. But you're here, man. That's something. You're in the Word. That's something. You can utter a prayer. Hey, listen. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That means if there is a flicker, no flame left, just smoke in your faith, Jesus will not snuff that out, but will fan that faith into existence. The very fact that you're here and you continue to show up, you may feel like you're on the verge of betrayal and walking away, but the fact that you're here is something. Be encouraged by that. None of us want to betray. None of us want to fall away. So how do you know if you're going to betray? How do you know if you're going to fall away? How do you keep from betraying? How do you keep from falling away? What do you do if someone else falls away? What do you do if someone else betrays? How do you, as a member of the body of Christ, if you look around the parking lot, you can look, lock eyes with somebody that you care about, that you pray with, that you love in the faith. What if they fall away tomorrow or next year or next few years? How do you restore them? Can you restore someone? How do you restore someone without falling away yourself? How do you know when to let someone go? Paul said, I have handed him over to Satan to teach him not to blaspheme. He also says to expel the immoral brother, to kick him out of your fellowship. How do you know when to do these things? How do you know when not to do those things? How do we stay close in abiding faith and try to avoid falling away altogether? Let's talk about that for a few minutes. First, let me give you some warning signs that you're about to fall away. I'm not a list guy. If I make a list, then you want the list again. And you're going to have to repeat the list. You're going to take notes if you're a list guy. I just try to give you, in my notes before I preach, I usually say, you know, allow them to continue to explore the topic. And I just want to give you general 
overviews and enough detail that you can pursue the details on your own, but I'm gonna give you a little bit of a list. How do you know if you're about to fall away? Falling away is different than betraying. How do you know if you're gonna fall away? Because believers will stumble and fall. The most sincere among us will struggle and fight. They'll fail, they'll claw, they'll disappear, they'll come back. If King David, a man after God's own heart, is capable of great sin and falling away, don't be so arrogant to think that that's not you. Proverbs 16, 18 painfully reminds us that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before the fall. One study by Howard Hendricks where he interviewed over 200 pastors who had fallen away in immorality had three, all 200 and something had three things in common, only three things. They stopped reading scripture, they stopped being accountable, and they all said, it'll never happen to me. Listen, pride's an ugly thing. If you're walking in pride, be, be careful. Watch out that you haven't already stepped in the net. Watch out that you're not already snared. Paul says, if you think you're standing, beware lest you fall. How do you know you're in danger of falling away? Let me just give you some warning signs. Think of them as warning lights on the dashboard of your car. A warning sign that you're in danger of falling away. You're no longer enamored by the kingdom or by kingdom things. Missionaries don't inspire you. Sermons don't thrill you. Songs don't touch you. Testimonies don't move you. Invitations after a sermon are ignored. You stop reading scripture or you just kind of muscle through it. You no longer have any affection or you have a weakening affection for anything kingdom related. You avoid spiritual friends. You're critical your attention wanes. I remember during a time when I saw these warning signs in my own life, I just couldn't read. I struggled to even read. There, were, there, were a time, there was a time in my spiritual life where I was consuming 10 to 20 chapters of scripture a day. There were times when the warning signs were flaring on the dashboard of my faith when I could only read a verse a day and it took everything I had not to delete the email that said verse of the day. You know you're in danger of falling away when things of the kingdom no longer hold your attention. And conversely, you are completely enamored with the things of the world. You have all the time and attention <clears throat> for your hobbies. You have all the time and attention for a sport, for a team, for an event, for a TV show, for a home project. You invest countless hours in everything but things of the kingdom. You pursue sin and opportunities for your flesh and you reject all opportunities for spiritual growth. I listened to a sermon, a series of sermons by Sinclair Ferguson over the Upper Room Discourse this week, four hours in this audiobook. And it took two hours for me to find this quote that I had heard before. 
At one point he said, I'm amazed at the depth of the faith of Christians from previous generations, and he tied that to the hours of time spent every week in Bible study, fellowship, and listening to sermons. He said, compared with today, we struggle to sit through 30 minutes of a sermon. But Christ followers 100 years ago would sit through five or more hours of preaching on a Sunday. In addition to small group Bible studies, personal Bible studies, and preaching on a Wednesday or during a week. Now listen, I'm not opting or asking for us to go there's a danger in the days of being at the church 80 hours a week. But there, you can't argue with the fact that Christians today experience an anemia, a weakness, and it's reflected in the fact that we can hardly sit through a sermon. One sermon once a week. For some of us, that's too much. We, we have to take a week off a month and not, not come to church, not hear the word. Finally, and most, <clears throat> most dangerously, as I alluded to earlier, that we see in Peter, that we see in others, as we see all over Scripture, how do you know you're in danger of falling away? Number one, you're no longer enamored by the kingdom. Number two, you're enamored with things of the world. Number three, you pursue sin and opportunities for your flesh, and you reject opportunities for spiritual growth. And finally, in my list, you are filled with pride about yourself, filled with pride about your morality, your righteousness, your theology, your strength, your spiritual growth, and all your accomplishments. Pride comes before the fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. Conversely, humility comes before honor. God lifts the head of those who walk in humility and the fear of the Lord, but to those who are filled with pride, Pride comes before destruction. Now, what if you've already fallen away? I looked up almost every verse in Scripture this week that dealt with the idea of restoration. Most powerfully, by far, amongst all the stories of restoration is the restoration of King David by the prophet Nathan. You remember the story after David has sinned with Bathsheba after he's killed Uriah the Hittite? Nathan comes in confrontation and he paints this picture of the rich man who kills the pet sheep of the poor man and takes all that he has. And David says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're that man. Nathan restores David so that David writes for us Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. How do you restore someone who's fallen away? It can be done. It happens. Often. Successfully. But scripture says that you have to do so gently and cautiously and being on guard for yourself, lest you fall. You have to confront someone truthfully. That is, you can't compromise scripture. 
The moment of confrontation, though painful, though it's the removal of shrapnel or a wound from someone, there is a painful part of that process. But the most loving thing you can do is to restore someone. James says that he who restores someone covers over a multitude of sins and wins that person over. You can restore someone truthfully, painfully, lovingly, humbly, patiently. Jesus prescribes it for us. In Matthew, he talks about the process of church discipline, that if you know someone who has sinned, you go to that person one-to-one personally. And if that person listens to you, and they repent of their sins, says you've won your brother over, you've won your sister over to faith. They've repented. The process of church discipline works best when you do it one-to-one, personally and privately, working with an individual. If that person rejects your loving confrontation, you go to them in a smaller group, two to three, maybe five, and you all try to show them sin is destructive. It's going to destroy you. It's going to take down your life and all your ministry and all everything that you've done in the past. This is going to destroy you if you persist in sin. And if that person repents, you have won him over. If they don't repent and continue to persist, you bring it before the entire church. That is, we would have a church business meeting where we would describe the sinful, persistent, willful, bad behavior of a person. And the church together would mourn and wail and cry and pray and try to convince that person, if you persist in sin, it will destroy you because sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It will always cost you more than you are willing to pay. And it will always do more damage than you think it will. And the most loving thing is for you to stop and repent and fall on the mercy of God Fall on the grace of God. But if that person continues to reject even the pleas and the cries of the church, the process of church discipline is that you should excommunicate or dismiss from the fellowship any person who stubbornly persistence persists. Did I say that right? Persistent, thank you there, Steve. Appreciate that. Persistently walks in willful, rebellious sin. Listen, the beauty in the kingdom of God is that there is always hope for restoration. Always hope. Always hope for restoration. In Ruth chapter 4, you remember Naomi has walked away from God, and in rebellion, God took her husband and her two children and Finally, through her period of restoration, Naomi experiences the blessing of God and everyone around her blesses her and says, blessed be the God who has not left you without a redeemer. In Ruth 4.14, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. Naomi Bears a grand, has a grandson, they name him Obed, he's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. Listen, God can take the worst rebellious story, and if a person is humble and willing to repent, he can turn that and turn it into a story of redemption. 
Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 23, 3, he restores my soul. Psalm 80, Psalm 85, Psalm 126. I, I, I had to stop taking notes in Jeremiah of all the passages of restoration. Joel 2.25, the one that's on a coffee cup somewhere, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Galatians 6, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore that person in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. James 5, if any one of you wanders from the faith, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen, restoration is not only possible, it's within grasp you can be fully and finally restored today. But the greatest thing that each of us can do in our hearts is keep from falling away in the first place. And you do that by staying in the fellowship, staying in the word, abiding in Christ, staying in good, challenging theological conversations, staying in vital, connected, honest, regular prayer. Think of Jacob who wrestled with God, not against God. He said, I refuse to let you go until you bless me. That's an honest picture of somebody struggling with God, wrestling with God, who doesn't have a pretty faith, but is holding on for all he is worth. Staying in vital connection. I've been listening to this song it repeats this phrase, this is how I fight my battle, and it's based on a verse in Isaiah 61.3 that in order for those to fight, they should put on a garment of praise instead of a spirit of weakness. That is, worship helps you stay in the fight. Listen, nobody here worships because they feel like it. You worship because God is worthy to be worshiped regardless of how you feel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that none of us fall away. I hope that I don't fall away. I hope that you don't fall away. But if we do, it's my hopeful prayer that the body of Christ restores and gives grace and speaks humbly and truthfully and passionately so that we may remain and abide in Christ. And the way we do that is by beholding the glory of Christ. I have in my photo folder all these pictures and I drive of just sunsets and cloud formations. Have you ever driven and just been overwhelmed by a sky? Has that ever happened to you? I shouldn't do this, but I do. I just kind of rest my phone on the steering wheel there, and I try to take this picture because the, the glory, all right, Psalm 19, 1, the skies proclaim the glory of God. Sometimes you just see something, and you just a picture doesn't even cut it. But I have all these pictures of just the glory of nature and creation just filling 
my windshield as I drive. And sometimes it just is so captivating. If you want to pursue and stay in Christ, allow the glory of Jesus to fill your windshield by continually beholding the beauty of Christ Jesus, not growing lukewarm in your affection for him, you'll find legs for endurance. I used to ride my bike all around Soderton, and the first few weeks of the year when I get my bike out, I, I don't know why I'd be shocked that I don't have strong enough muscles to get up these big hills, but I would have to get off my bike and walk my bike up the hill. And I remember biking around these hills and after a period of a month or more of doing that finding hey I made it to the top of that hill I was in the worst gear the lowest gear ever but I could I could finally get up that hill but then by the end of the summer or by the end of the fall finding that I could I could get up these hills with endurance if you want to have enduring strength it's not by following negative commands, it's by beholding the glory of Christ Jesus and abiding by faith in Him. You'll find legs and strength for each new day when you never grow tired of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you are continually captivated by Jesus and the redemption that He purchased for you on the cross. Father, would you give us persistence would you help us to persist, to not grow lukewarm, but to remain hot-hearted in our affection for you? Would you help us not to fall away, but to passionately pursue you, Jesus? That as we passionately pursue you, that you would fill our sails, and that we would find strength for each new day. My heart goes out, particularly today, for those who have momentarily fallen away. I know that I know that if King David could fall away, that I could fall away. I know that any of us, even the strongest among us today, could fall away. It's my prayer that as a church we would lovingly, compassionately restore those who have fallen away, praying for them, fasting for them, crying out for them, loving them, pursuing relationship with them in confrontation, loving confrontation, doing all we can to persuade them to remain. Lord Jesus, they would thank us one day if they were restored to the faith. I pray that you would give them restoration. I pray that we would be a body of believers who are really skilled at restoring those who have fallen away, that this would be as it were a triage, a hospital for those who are wounded and struggling, who don't have it all together, those who are broken, and those who are good at helping restore those who have fallen. Let this be a word of hope and grace. Jesus, you told the disciples, after you fall away, this is where I'm gonna be. You know where to find me. And you know that I will be there to lovingly restore a relationship with them. Jesus, would you restore those who have fallen among us? Consume their will today 
Help them to see you as the father at the edge of the field waiting for the son who has run away, for the daughter who has run away. Lord, give us legs for endurance. I pray in Jesus' name that you would do your work among us today. We thank you for this morning of Bible study. We pray that your spirit would be at work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.